0: Hello, and welcome to Ice Age Prep Reads, Season 3, Seed of Knowledge, Stone of Plenty. Uh, Welcome back, everybody. Um, We're going to be doing Chapter 2 in this session. I'm reading this off of Scribd.com, S-C-R-I-B-D.com, and this is my first read-through of this. So we get to learn it together, sit back, enjoy, let's begin. Chapter 2. Harnessing Nature's Electromagnetic Energy Quote, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. End quote. Arthur C. Clarke, Profiles of the Future, 1961, Clarke's Third Law. We live our lives engaged in a daily electromagnetic dance with our planet. Earth is hardly a stable world. In fact, it pulses every day with powerful rhythms of electrical and magnetic force, and so do we. Earth produces a magnetic field much like a bar magnet. Any compass needle tells us that the north pole of our Earth magnet is near the physical north pole, which is one end of the axis on which our planet rotates. Life on Earth would be impossible without this field called thermomagnet. This, oh, wow. Little bit of slip up there. Life on Earth would be impossible without this field called the geomagnetic field. The geomagnetic field deflects the solar wind. Deadly blasts of electrically charged high energy particles from the sun. Mars lacks a magnetic field causing its surface to be hostile to life. But the geomagnetic field takes a beating doing its job. The field is depressed when struck by gusts of solar wind, much like a warrior whose shield deflects a mighty enemy's sword strike but recoils in the process. An An aurora can be produced by an unusually powerful solar gust, and is roughly analogous to the ringing of the shield under a particularly vicious blow. During the northern lights, air molecules at the upper edges of the atmosphere are so excited by the impact of the solar wind that they glow. When our part of the Earth rotates into sunlight at dawn, the geomagnetic field recoils from the impact of solar wind, and this affects the field lines. Field lines can be thought of as linear incarnations of the magnetic field. Sprinkle iron filings on a piece of paper above a magnet, and you will watch the filings arrange themselves along these invisible lines of force. At dawn, the magnetic field lines shrink, which makes them stronger. That means that the strength of the geomagnetic field running through the land, our homes, our bodies, and brains surges each dawn. Conversely, at night, the geomagnetic field lines are no longer being compressed by solar wind, and they gradually stretch into a long tail emanating from the dark side of the planet and a pattern reminiscent of a comet. This lengthening of the field lines weakens them. The end result of all this is that the geomagnetic field weakens at night only to come roaring back quickly as dawn approaches. There are places where the local geology makes this effect stronger than at others due to the principle of electromagnetism. Electromagnetism is a single word for a reason. Magnetism and electric force are intertwixt inextricably twins. A moving electric current generates a magnetic field, and a changing magnetic field generates electric current in anything present that will conduct it. This is how our electrical power plants work. Physical force from a coil, from coal, oil, or falling water move a mass of copper wires past a huge magnet, and an electric current is generated. This this is the principle of physics known as induction. Earth itself is subject to these same forces. When dawn brings a change in magnetic field strength, it actually generates weak DC currents in the ground. Like all electric currents, the... ...satellaric currents... ...travel better in some media than others. Ground with lots of metal or water within it conducts these natural, daily currents particularly well. Drier or less metallic ground conducts it less well. When these two types of land intersect, we have what geologists call a uh, conductivity discontinuity. And interesting things happen there. The ground current hurting this boundary has a tendency to either reinforce or weaken those daily magnetic fluctuations. Sometimes by several hundred percent. This change in magnetic field strength in turn generates more electric current. So conductivity discontinues my goodness, this words. So conductivity discontinuities are happening places. Their magnetic fluctuations or ground currents are much higher than in surrounding areas. It was our good fortune that it is the Z axis, the axis that our mag magnometer Jeez. Mag, <laughs> and it was our it was our good fortune that it is the Z axis, the axis that our magnum magnometer magnetometer measures. The, <laughs> of the geomagnetic field that is affected this way. One important effect of these ground currents is that they will attract electrified air molecules of opposite sign. A positive electric current in the ground will draw negatively charged air molecules toward it and vice versa. These effects are magnified on islands or peninsulas. And then on the next page, there's an image, figure one. The electric hinge hinge it is intriguing that ancient builders as we shall see repeatedly selected conductivity discontinuities for the sites of giant structures of earth and stone furthermore most of these earth currents travel near the surface in the uppermost three feet or so of ground cutting a three foot deep ditch in the ground tends to block the flow A henge is a C-shaped ditch, only a few also have stones. The ditches tend to have been dug a minimum of 3 feet deep. The open part of the sea is undisturbed ground that has not been cut by a ditch. Ground current trying to flow across the henge will be blocked by the ditch, like water hitting a seawall. It will flow around the ditch, following the path of least resistance which is the undisturbed ground in the middle of our sea. All the ground current will concentrate here in order to enter inside the area enclosed by the henge ditch. This is similar to what happens when a large tidal pond fills up and empties itself twice a day through a narrow opening when the tide is changing. The current can be swift and surprisingly powerful within the narrow outline. Cash and I have measured this effect on Tulleric current ourselves on site in England, as have others. However, we were quite surprised to see that Native Americans in the Midwest built similar henge like structures. Mounds and Pyramids, the Great Attractors. The functioning of Native American mounds incorporates the physics of ground current as well as another feature well known to anyone who has seen a tall tree that has been struck by lightning. Any buildup of electric charge in the air will seek out the shortest course to connect with opposite electric charge in the ground. What is invisible to us is the most pos- mostly positive ground current that ends up concentrating as positive electric charge in the trees. Opposites attract, and the positive charge is drawn toward the predominantly negative electric charge in a thunderstorm. Those negatively charged electrons in the thunderhead likewise concentrate wherever an oppositely charged electric attractor is strongest, i.e., the treetop. These two reach out to one another. In the process, they ionize or electrify some of the air between them. If this process proceeds far enough, a lightning bolt discharges and the tree is struck. What is important to bear in mind for our investigation is that not all such processes are energetic enough to be visible to the eye like a lightning strike. If no thunderstorm is present, the location of the positive and negative charges is ordinarily just the opposite. Earth's atmosphere has a natural electric field that is generally positive, except during special local events like thunderstorms, while the surface itself is predominantly negative. Electric fields, like magnetic fields, possessed field lines. One of our instruments, the electrostatic voltmeter, can measure the amount of electric charge in the air. If you raise it from waist level to above your head on an average day, in an average place, you will see an increase of about 50 millivolts. In certain special places and at certain times, it can raise a great deal more, as it did for us atop Call's Lost World Pyramid. Figure 2 shows how the atmospheric electric field lines will concentrate at the top of the peak and the negative charge of the ground will likewise concentrate at a peak. The trick for the ancient mound and pyramid builders, particularly in the lightning-rich America, was to build a mound on an electrically active spot like a conductive conductivity discontinuity then make the mound high enough and narrow enough to attract a dense bunching of atmospheric field lines, all without drawing a lightning strike. Neither these mounds nor the New World pyramids had pointed tops like in Egypt lessening the chances of a lightning strike. However many of the larger Native American earthen mounds had wooden temples on top, which every so many years would be struck by lightning and burned to the ground. There are additional methods that ancient architects used to concentrate and harness natural electromagnetic energies. For now, let us address the question of how these forces could possibly have improved agricultural results. The genesis of a new theory. No one to our knowledge has ever reported a peculiar effect. That seeds placed at these structures and subjected to certain energies there will often grow dramatically better and give higher yields. In Guatemala, Kaj and I hoped to find evidence that would confirm our theory, that producing better crops was the motive for erecting these megalithic monuments. When we have explained this theory in person, we have inevitably been interrupted with the urgent question, what in the world ever made you start thinking this way in the first place? The answer involves the type of business I was doing at that time. In 1993, I was helping to develop a new technology for treating seeds with electromagnetic energy. Prototype devices had improved seed performance dramatically by subjecting the seeds to a special type of carefully controlled shower of electrons. This treatment was not microwave or radiation, but something far gentler, more akin to static electricity, the type that makes a balloon stick to the ceiling when you rub it on your hair. It could dramatically change agricultural seeds when used very precisely, altering the physiology of the seeds and thereby the plants that grew from them. The primary inventor of the electron shower seed treatment was Michigan biologist W.C. Levengood, who had been working for over 10 years on the electrophysiology of seeds. He had a few patents to his credit in the field, but this time he had found something truly revolutionary Seeds exposed to the right strengths of these gentle electron showers for the right amount of time showed drastic growth improvements. They germinated faster, grew through the seedling stage faster, and, as we were soon to find out, matured faster in the field and were more resistant to stress of all kinds. Most importantly, they produced more food per acre, and all this productivity was accomplished without the use of single chemicals. The improved resistance to stress was the most striking characteristic of all. Sweet corn seeds treated by these special showers and then planted in cold wet soil too early in the spring were 10 to 12 days more mature and an arm's length taller by mid-season. Third years of corn were ready for market sooner and there were more of them. The ears were larger and more uniform. We have since had commercial growers who use the process on sweet corn comment, on the improved quality of the years. 90 percent of farmers who have planted such improved seed in various countries using a variety of crops have returned each year to pay to have the process performed on next year's seed. Growers who have tested a small amount have come back to insist that all their seed be treated next year or they will take their business elsewhere. Such stories include carrot growers in Canada, tomato farmers in China, and even whole provincial governments in China where they are trying to grow soybeans on the same latitude as Nova Scotia, and finding the soybean plants can use all the help they can get. There, the improved soybean seed emerges from the soil so much faster that it is apparent within days. The growth rate and final yield substantially exceed those of plant from non-treated seed. In later years, other test plantings were affected by extreme weather conditions and provided more visually dramatic evidence of the differences made by these energetic processes. Carrots in any field that floods for several days in the early season usually produce a bumper crop of octopus shaped roots that cannot be sold and are therefore called coals. When this happened in Ontario, Canada, in a field that was half planted with energized seeds we cut the coal rate in half. On the opposite sides of the country, in the Pacific Northwest, a salt incursion and a carrot test plot a few days after planting killed 40% of the carrot seedlings, except in the numerous plots sown with otherwise identical seed that we had treated. In Chinese provinces with acid soil, seeds treated with this energy produced more than 12% extra soybeans per acre and 30% more tomatoes a vegetable that originated in pre-Incan-Andes. The process essentially subjects the seeds to an electromagnetic impulse that prompts a natural response from the cell on a molecular level. It dramatically improves the plant's ability to withstand stress. While biochemistry involved sounds technical, it is in fact the same response that occurs inside our own bodies when we jog or engage in other aerobic activity. The net result function almost like a vaccination or inoculation against what is called oxidative stress. This is the primary cause of aging in our bodies and the reason we take antioxidants like vitamin E to guard our health. Oxidative stress is Mother Nature's biggest design flaw if you hope to live a long and vigorous life. Because of this insidious design flaw, we slowly lose vigor and start to break down a bit at a time. This is true for plants and animals, but we have found a way to tinker with this degeneration and improve plants capabilities. Oxygen is both our curse and our blessing. It is the high test gasoline of metabolism, but its exhaust, so to speak, can be extremely toxic to those using it. Inside each of us, our cells, of our cells are one of 200 tiny energy factories called mitochondria. This is where the oxygen we breathe gets processed and used to make energy for our cells. The design flaw occurs because 2-3% of these oxygen molecules are processed improperly and they emerge from the assembly line in a damaged form. They are missing an electron. For reasons of stability, electrons around atoms and molecules occur in pairs. When you remove one, then then you have a lone wolf electron that needs a partner. He will do his best to rip that partner out of anything he comes into contact with, cell membrane walls, DNA, etc. Those areas that have electrons stolen in this way now have their own problems and fail to function properly. In fact, the reason that rotten fruit gets soft is that a flood of free radicals are eating up the cell wall membranes inside. When we run, we consume more oxygen. So more oxygen molecules are processed inside the mitochondria, and that means that our steady 2 or 3% rate of mistake produces greater numbers of free radicals. How can this be good for us? Well, strictly speaking, it isn't. What is good for us is the response of our cells to this threat. They make their own antioxidants, including vitamin E, vitamin C, and a dozen or more others that few of us have ever heard of. To simplify somewhat, these vitamins begin supplying that extra electron and thereby converting the dangerous free radical back to a normal, balanced oxygen molecule. These natural antioxidants now gobble up up the free radicals we produce during the run and then continue to hang around for a while. We now have more antioxidants and fewer free radicals than we did before the run, explaining how aerobic exercise extends our life. What's more, the next time we run and there is another spike in free radical production, our cells are better able to quickly produce more antioxidants than they were before they had this practice. This is why we compare these controlled free radical stresses to a vaccination where the body is given a dose of something harmful in order to give the body's defense practice at combating it so that the next time they encounter the harm, they will do better, be better able to deal with it. This process has been shown in the plant world for a long time and is called stress hardening. A specific form is cold hardening and is familiar to many backyard gardeners. In the spring, when you take your tomato seedlings to their little cells, out of the greenhouse to transplant them into the ground, you want to leave them first near the door of the greenhouse for a few days and let them gradually adjust to the colder conditions outside. Then you move them outside, but don't transplant them yet. During this time, the stress from the cold, like any environmental stress for plants, disrupts the oxygen process, processing and raises that 2-3% free radical rate to maybe 5-6%. to Then the process we discussed above with increased antioxidant production occurs, and now you have a plant that can handle cold stress better next time. In fact, it can handle other stresses better too. Some researchers have noticed that cold hardening can also make a plant more resistant to disease or drought. What we have realized is that all stresses, heat, cold, drought, flood, disease, oh my gosh, senescence, impact the plant the same way at the molecular level by worsening the free radical si- situation. One treatment with the above-mentioned electron shower can kickstart this process before the seed hits the soil. In this process, very low-energy electrons running through the air at one millionth of an amp coat the seed. As they absorb into the cell, they get absorbed as well into the mitochondria, where they are known to disrupt the oxygen processing in a way that increases the production of our free radicals. Then the cellular antioxidant defenses get involved, etc. In the end, you end up with a cell that can handle just about anything better. The second worst design flaw of Mother Nature is that right where the free radicals emerge from within the mitochondrial resides the mitochondria's own DNA. Now mitochondrial DNA is very unusual not a double helix like a normal DNA, because a billion years ago or so, mitochondria were separated, separate, complete microorganisms. They were the world's first oxygen breathers. This made them Ferraris in a world of Volkswagens, and soon every Volkswagen wanted a Ferrari engine. Eventually, the world's most important incident of symbiosis occurred, and a marriage was made between mitochondria and other microorganisms. They became one. Forever afterwards, mitochondria would live inside of cells that had a nucleus and the far more efficient double helix form of its DNA. That was when life could finally crawl out of the oceans, now that the poisonous atmosphere of toxic oxygen could be harnessed. When some kind of damage, possibly a free radical, impacts a double helix, the odds are that what it takes out will not be very important, because most parts of the double helix do not hold genes. They seem to be there almost as a filler, without a real role to play, which is why scientists named them junk DNA. Since junk DNA takes most of the hits, the double helix is fairly resistant to serious damage from small stresses. The mitochondria DNA, on the other hand, is not a double helix, but a simple ring. Just like certain very ancient bacteria have today. It has very few junk units, and the ring lies right next to where free radicals arise, so free radical damage is constantly hitting chunks of meaningful DNA. As you might imagine, once the DNA goes, things fall apart, and the, DNA, and the DNA does go. The cell's natural antioxidants defenses are working all the time to defend against the threat, but they are always losing the battle. In the end, one bit at a time, cumulative damage occurs. This is why we have so much less energy as we age. A normal person age 50 has half the number of mitochondria per cell as he, she or he did at age 20. Exercise can increase the number of mitochondria per cell in humans. In plants, the free radical equivalent of exercise as carefully controlled doses can do the same. In our test plantings with seed companies and in our own fields, we repeatedly notice an accelerated maturity. The plants are ready to be harvested earlier than seeds taken from the same seed lot, which did not receive an electron shower treatment. This early maturity allowed certain hybrids of corn, for example, to be planted further north than they usually could be grown and still attain full maturity. While researching something else, I stumbled across a paper in a science journal that talked about a new school of thought that loosely calls itself mitochondrial inheritance. It isn't inheritance in the sense of genes. It is simply this idea. As an embryo or a seed grows, its cells have to divide and duplicate themselves many times. It has long been known that when this happens, the double helix DNA in the cell's nucleus controls the operation. What has not been discovered more recently, what has just been discovered more recently is that the mitochondria still behave as if they were that separate organism that was co-opted by their cells so many eons ago. The mitochondria control their own division and replication. So now it is known that mitochondria with damaged DNA will make a damaged twin. Soon both of them will divide and replicate making more damaged twins and so on. With each generation more damaged copies are made and the original damaged unit becomes an avalanche of damaged units. Ultimately, a child or an animal or a plant is born alright, but bears less than perfect energy factories. For a plant with limited amounts of food, light, and water, this process means that the plant cells will be unable to make full use of the inputs. By contrast, a cell with fully intact mitochondrial DNA will make much more efficient use of the inputs and therefore can complete its full life cycle on less input. In the real world, it matures early and therefore can be harvested before an average crop is ready. Once we understood this, we felt that we could tell everyone. With our discovery of how electromagnetism can increase agricultural production, we could see what others had missed, the significance of heightened energy activity at ancient monuments. That is the end of Chapter 2. Thank you all for joining me. Please uh, tell your friends about it if you want. You can follow me on Twitter at age underscore prep. That's where I post this link as well to the podcast. And, um, yeah, thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Um, Stay safe, everybody. And next time we will read Chapter 3, which is entitled, How Did They Know? Stay safe, everyone.